Early in the morning of January 16, 1991, seven U.S. Air Force B-52 bombers left Barksdale Air Force Base near Shreveport, Louisiana. Their unsuspecting target lay half a world away. 35 hours later, the airmen returned from a non-stop round-trip mission to Iraq after delivering the opening salvo of Operation Desert Storm. They traveled 14,000 nautical miles and dropped 35 cruise missiles, paving the way for American forces to defeat Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein. At the time, it was the longest combat mission in history, and it was a testament to the value of the B-52. Since entering service in 1955, the Boeing B-52 Stratofortress has held strategic importance as the most combat-capable bomber in the U.S. inventory. During Desert Storm, B-52s delivered 40% of all weapons dropped by coalition forces. And when used for ocean surveillance, two B-52s can monitor 140,000 square miles of ocean surface in two hours. The heavy bomber can fly at speeds of 650 miles per hour and carry 70,000 pounds of ordnance, including conventional or nuclear missiles. It can fly more than 8,800 miles without refueling, but aerial refueling capabilities mean its range is only limited by aircrew endurance. However, the newest B-52 dates back to 1962 and it has become increasingly difficult to find parts to service its original engines. A 2017 report determined those engines would be unsustainable in just over a decade due to a disappearing supply chain. To keep this valuable aircraft flying, the Air Force embarked on a Commercial Engine Replacement Program, or SERP, to replace the current engines with commercial ones that are so maintenance-friendly and efficient they will pay for themselves in 10 years. The new engines would have to improve fuel efficiency by 20 to 40% without sacrificing performance, cope with the unique design of two engines on each of the four wing struts, and conquer an array of electrical and aerodynamic challenges. The biggest challenge, though, was not the performance requirements, but was integrating the commercial engines with the aircraft and adapting them for military use. Meeting this goal required a digital infrastructure that would allow designers to rapidly test proposed prototypes to ensure compatibility and catch potential pitfalls. That's when the Air Force turned to Erdic. Using the Information Technology Laboratory's Supercomputing Research Center, Erdic established a virtual ecosystem that integrated a number of design and visualization tools to meet the project's unique requirements. This enabled the Air Force to combine and analyze data at rapid speeds and to conduct intensive, high-fidelity modeling of prototypes and their effects on the aircraft. These modern design techniques enabled the selection of a new engine that will meet the requirements and keep the legendary B-52 flying into the 2050s. I'm Chris Kiefer, and with Megan Holland, this is The Power of Erdic. Our guest today is York Yarbrough. Chief Operating Officer of the Supercomputing Research Center at Erdic's Information Technology Laboratory. We will talk with York about how Erdic enabled a faster and more comprehensive design process that will allow the U.S. Air Force to continue using the B-52 on vital missions over the next three decades. Hey York, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. So the Air Force needed to replace the engine on the B-52 and 
I'm not sure people think about aircraft when they think U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, much less an information technology laboratory. So can you tell us a little bit about how and why Arctic got involved? From our perspective in the SRC, Supercomputing Research Center, Larry Lynch and Val Miller from ITL, they had been meeting with the Air Force acquisition folks. Uh, Larry was aware of some of the work we had done in the SRC previously related to developing sort of a digital ecosystem to support, improve the design and collaboration capabilities uh, that we've done with some other mission partners. They asked myself and uh, Anthony Stevens from the SRC to engage in some of their initial brainstorming sessions. One discussion led to another. Pretty soon we were actively engaged with the B-52 Special Program Office in their commercial engine replacement program. That's, That's how it started. In the SRC, you mentioned that's the Supercomputing Research Center. That's part of the information technology lab we have here at Arctic, and we'll talk about that a little later in the show. And, and you also mentioned, you know, I guess it all started because of Arctic's background in, in building a digital ecosystem. And, and I, I know a, a major success story of this process was that, that it used digital engineering techniques to help designers and whatnot as, as they tried to figure out all the complications of this new engine. Can you explain what that is and, and why that was important to have one here and what some of the benefits of that process were? A couple of aspects there. So one is the digital engineering piece. The, uh, the ecosystem itself supported uh, the digital engineering that the Air Force was performing. Digital engineering is one of those terms that has a variety of meanings to different folks, depending on the context that it's used in. But at the base of it, digital engineering, it, it starts with model-based systems engineering. And the B-52 folks were using MBSE, model-based systems engineering, as part of conducting a model-based source selection or an acquisition process for the sort uh, of effort. Today, what most folks think of as digital engineering, it gets transformed by taking advantage of things like modern data analytics and computing capabilities, things like agile development processes, more open architectures, The Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Science, Technology, and Engineering, uh, Ms. Kristen Baldwin, she refers to that as the digital trinity. The benefits for this particular program, the CERP program. And And I'm I'm sorry, I'm just going to stop you just for the acronym. CERP, of course, is Commercial Engine Replacement Program. It's basically what the Air Force is calling. It's the title the Air Force gave to this program for replacing the B-52 engine, right? Right, that's correct, yeah in the initial stages that allowed them to speed up their processes and their reviews of the submissions they had received during the acquisition and evaluation process. The other benefit that accrued was that it gave them a substantial head start on improving the alignment and consistency of their data. One of their biggest challenges when we first got engaged with them is they have a lot of legacy and outdated data in a lot of disparate places. So one of the things we did was work with them to assimilate a lot of that, put it in a common place where they could take care of it, filter out the noise and and begin creating their data repository. Mm-hmm. So as the project evolved, one of their longest term goals is to, they want to develop uh, what they call an authoritative source of truth for the B-52 program lifecycle data. And they want to use that as a cornerstone for their future B-52 digital thread capabilities. So that that evolved as this project evolved, that, that vision. We talked in the opening about, you know, one of the challenges of this re-engineering process was getting engines that could not only meet these fuel efficiency guidelines, but also would be compatible with the airplane and fit in the existing wing struts and, and all those type of things. I mean, is that kind of where 
these digital capabilities matter so much because you have so many things that you're trying to, to mesh together that it allows you to test a lot of these things digitally before physical prototypes? In a nutshell, yes, it does help them do that. In this case, they weren't looking at the entire aircraft. They were looking at parts of it probably is the best way to say it. Yeah. They were mainly concerned with the engines and the performance and the, um, the effect on the airworthiness of the aircraft. I know I'm oversimplifying it, but just for the sake of, I guess, audience that's not really familiar with this, I mean, where Erdic's role in a lot of this was just kind of building the infrastructure that enabled that process and, and enabled them to have a lot of their visualization tools and, and whatnot in one place and, and different entities from the government and corporations and whatnot all able to access it. Yeah, that's uh, definitely correct. So from the SRC, what we did was we, we basically designed and delivered some capabilities for virtual machines and virtual desktops and such that enabled them to perform what they called data wrangling, which I thought was a very apt term. Yeah, I like uh, that word. And so as part of the digital ecosystem, uh, we provided them a consistent and a stable configuration and access to some of the tools they wanted to use and also uh, access to the DRAN network, which is the uh, R&D network, uh, defense research engineering network, mm -hmm. uh, and the capabilities there, which they were highly interested in availing themselves of. Our team uh, wasn't engaged in the high-performance computing or HPC portions of what they were doing. Uh, they had that expertise on their team already uh, with some of their engineers. So they used the um, high-performance computing modernization programs, supercomputers, and even some of the programs create tools for some of the work they were doing. They took those data outputs from their HPC work and they fed that into what they termed as the SERP. They called it MILHUB, M-I-L-H-U-B. That enabled them to, uh, they were more interested in getting the data, feeding the data in, and then the visualizations took place some at some point after that. And that was one of the challenges that we had to overcome was the ability to render graphics on remote virtual desktops. They were doing the data wrangling. They were pulling the data in and doing that. We were giving them an environment where they could capture it, uh, organize it, wrangle, massage it, you know, whatever they had to do to get it, to get it usable. Yeah. York, you mentioned that was one of the challenges you faced. I know you and your team faced some pretty unique challenges during this process. Can you talk a little bit about what those were and how you overcame them? So the visualization piece, we actually were meeting with their team in uh, Oklahoma City. And we were watching them go through some of the process. We didn't really uh, appreciate the problem for what it was doing to them as a team. And we were watching them try to render an engine on a workstation. And they were using these virtual desktops. Well, we quickly identified what they really needed was a uh, graphics processing unit, a GPU capability to do that. And so um, our group, Anthony Stevens and uh, Lourdes Castillo-Velez, uh, worked to make that happen virtually, which really improved the processes. It was taking them hour to two hours, I, I think, to render an engine. And so once we did that, I think it reduced that down to just minutes. I mean, you know, so that they could do the whole thing and even faster as we got as we got further down the road. Since it was a collaborative effort with the Air Force and the industry partners, right up front, uh, the major issue was getting the networks open and secured, which seemed to be contradictory sometimes, mm -hmm. but where the mill hub was accessible from the Air Force network, uh, as well as by the industry folks uh, who were led by Boeing as the integrator. Mm -hmm. The main challenges there really weren't technical ones. We, we had done it before, so we knew what 
things on the network needed to be opened or put in place. The problem really came down to as much about process and IT bureaucracy, for lack of a better way to put it, Mm. as anything else. Following up on that theme with the engagement from major industry, they had a lot of sensitivity to ensuring the integrity and the confidentiality of their intellectual property and proprietary info. And those were things they provided as part of their contractual deliverables and, you know, requirements. So there we just pretty much just, you know, used some role-based authentication to overcome that one. And so that's how we worked, worked through some of that. After that, the real challenge was really essentially just keeping up with their pace of development and the changes that they needed us to make to improve the usefulness of the tools in the environment. Uh, they used agile techniques to conduct a number of sprints with really quick turns. It was fun, but it was definitely challenging at times. You mentioned how much faster they're able to do this work now because of, of what you guys came in and did. What are the benefits to that? The real benefits enable them to conduct the acquisition faster, to get to a point where they can do their down selects and pick from the vendors quicker and ask the right questions faster, I, I think probably as much as anything, right? right? So you're giving decision makers the pieces they need to make decisions faster and with more information? Yeah. And to go back and um, to do the the trade-offs, right, that they need to do to make the decisions they need to make. Does this yeah. help save money as well? It did help them save money. The um, systems engineering group conservatively estimated the whole effort. The Arctic Park saved them probably $10 million wow. just in from that part of it. I think in terms of saving money, I had read an article from Dr. Uh, Will Roper, who used to be in charge of the acquisition for the Air Force. Their intent was really it saves money, but the real intent was to be able to make the turns faster so they could do more work and do more analysis and reach the conclusions faster, which the byproduct is saving money. But in the end, it, it makes for a better product because they're not as pressed for time. You know, they get to do more in the same amount of time. And they were under pressures at the time themselves because the engines that were aging, they had a limited capacity to go much further down the road. And the Air Force strategically had committed to keeping the B-52s flying into the 2050 mm. time frame. So, yeah, sure. So the, they had, yeah, had to get it done and, and get it done quickly. Uh, and, and so that's why, you know, they turned to Erdic, and we've talked a little bit about how they came to Erdic, And But just to kind of boil it down, I mean, what, what are the unique capabilities that Erdic brought to the table for this effort? From our perspective, what we brought to the table was the expertise and some background in designing those virtual machines and those virtual desktops and leveraging things like GPU capabilities and creating some access for data. For this particular project, those are the things we brought to the table. We had done that previously Mm -hmm. uh, in some other areas, and so that experience lent itself well to what we were trying to build here and to tailor to what they needed. When we first talked about this, you mentioned that you had a personal connection to this project, and I think it's one of my favorite pieces of this whole story. Can you tell us a little bit about your history with the B-52 and what it meant to you to play a significant role in keeping them in the air? So my father, uh, who's currently 89 years young, uh, he's my personal number one hero. He is retired from the Air Force. Personally, I was born in Loring, at Loring Air Force Base uh, in Maine. Uh, my sister was born three years later at Keesler Air Force Base. So we definitely have some Air Force flowing through us as a family. Yeah. My earliest memories are of my father uh, in his Air Force uniform and seeing articles from the, the Air Force Base newspaper with his team's picture in it from winning bombing competitions that they would do. My father joined the Air Force because they would let him work on electronics, which is what he wanted to do. 
And on the B-52s in particular, he worked on the secure communications. So he and I've had conversations about that. And he's relayed a lot of stories and anecdotes, and most of them on the, on the humorous side from that time. And so, you know, this gives me a, a very personal connection for me to him on the B-52 efforts. And we used to go out to the airbase uh, when he would have to go out there sometimes for a quick trip or something. And sometimes he would take me out there and we would watch the B-52s take off and land. That, that's cool. York, talk more about Erdic Supercomputing Research Center and its mission and the kind of work it does. So first and foremost, uh, the SRCs, it's a great team of folks and they've got a variety of skills. It's a fun place to work. Most of the work we do is performed in support of the Department of Defense High Performance Computing Modernization Program or HPCMP. Mm-hmm. That portion of the work in the SRC covers administration and maintenance of supercomputers hosted at Erdic, benchmarking of the HPC systems and software for the HPC program. And we have a team called the, the DAC, which is Data Analysis and Assessment Center. So we have that team, which does some really cool visualizations of the uh, HPC data and some interesting virtual reality, kind of an immersive virtual reality type work. And to give you an idea of how rapidly technology evolves, our largest supercomputer uh, there at Erdic is called Onyx. It's currently listed uh, as the 75th most powerful computer in the world. Wow. Just a few years ago, it was in the top 30. So that's how quickly things evolve. Uh-huh. We also do some other efforts. So that's the program, the stuff we do for the HPC program. Uh, we also have some efforts we do on a reimbursable basis, which are typically highly complementary with the HPC MP work. Uh, we do it for a DOD customers, as well as we engage with some of the labs at Erdic. And currently, that's mainly with Geotechnical Structures Lab, the um, Coastal Hydraulics Lab, and also some work there at the Information Technology Lab. That work encompasses a lot of things and includes these digital ecosystems that we're talking about. We've got people engaged in assessing, providing some of these services via the cloud or the viability of that. We've got others who are actively in, uh, engaged in data analysis and edge computing, which is an evolving area of interest in DOD and inter- industry. And also there is a increasing demand, and we've really seen it the last probably 12, 18 months, uh, for HPC, for high-performance computing, supercomputing capabilities above and beyond what the HPC modernization program, uh, the DOD's HPC modernization program uh, is resource to provide. So we're engaged in providing those capabilities primarily through identifying HPC systems within the DOD and the program that we can reutilize and bringing those online. We've got one system at Erdic currently. We've got another that we're bringing up probably within the next six months that we relocated from the Air Force Research Lab. What are some of the unique capabilities that the SRC offers? I think that the unique capabilities kind of covers in most of those things that were described there. I think it's the fact that we've got that variety of skill sets. We've got people who can engage depending on what they want to do, uh, whether it's trying to prototype code, to troubleshoot code, they want to visualize what their what their outputs are. Some of the other unique capabilities I think are I mentioned the edge computing, but also this uh, these digital ecosystems. That seems to be a, a niche that people ask us about a lot. How can you build those things? Depending on what they want to do. Yeah. In terms of the unique capabilities, it comes down to that. It's really those complementary efforts with the high performance computing work, in addition to the things that enable the data to be used in both directions, you know, whether it's at the high fidelity models or down and say a fast running program on a Windows workstation. 
So how did this B-52 project build off some of the past successes that you and your team have had? One of the things, we had built a very similar capability for DITRA, uh, Defense Threat Reduction Agency, and the um, what they call DITREAC, which is Defense Threat Reduction Information Analysis Center. They called it a collaboratory, uh, and essentially it was a cooperative that consisted of multiple entities from Department of Defense and federally funded research and development centers. And we did that at multiple classification levels, but it was a very, it was a very similar approach in that they had a problem to solve and tools they wanted to use. And we sat down and designed a way to configure those virtually so that people could be geographically dispersed and come together and use a common set of tools that are configured in a common way. Uh, they had problems with version control outputs being different depending on the versions of programs used by whichever entity happened to be using it at the time. Uh, so it helped them unite their efforts for this uh, collaboratory effort at, at DITRA. And a lot of the things that we learned there, we were able to leverage for the B-52 project. Can you highlight some of the projects that the Supercomputing Research Center team is working on, some of the other projects? I know you have a lot going on. Yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, I'd be happy to do that. Most recently, we had a ribbon cutting. Uh, we opened a, a new computing facility. Recently, another effort, uh, we've engaged with DARPA, uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. I think I got that right. For a couple of their programs, one's in cybersecurity, one's in uh, involved with aircraft. So we've been involved with them, but in a different way, not with the ecosystems, but we've been working with them for either high-performance computing resources or providing them with some uh, support for some cybersecurity uh, efforts that they have underway. I think following up on that supercomputing power theme I mentioned earlier, where Onyx was the number 75 in the world, formerly 30, in the 30s, I guess. We are currently in the acquisition phase for the replacement for Onyx, and it remains to be seen where that will rank in terms of computing power, but I would expect it to be up on the scale. Sure, sure. Tell us about how you came to be involved with the SRC. So for that, we'd almost need to queue up the Beatles uh, for the long and winding road. From the B-52s to the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. So instead of the long winding road, I'll just hit a couple of high points. <laughs> so I started in the core at what was then called the Lower Mississippi Valley Division. Now it's the Mississippi Valley Division, and it was a part of a, a, the core has gone through a couple of reworks since then. This is actually my second tour at ITL. Back right after 9-11, I came to ITL as part of what was then called CIS, or the Corps of Engineers Enterprise Infrastructure Services. So that was my first tour at ITL, working uh, for Dr. Wright and Dr. Holland. Fast forward to 2017, I was talking to Dr. Dr. Reed Moser, who was the director of ITL at the time. And uh, he told me he had an opportunity with the SRC that would align to my interests that we had been discussing. And sure enough, it's five years later, it's been, it's been fun. And I am grateful every day to Dr. Moser for the opportunity to do it. That's cool. So this was a collaborative effort. Can you talk about that collaboration and some of the partners that you work with? The partners were the Air Force, the B-52 Special Program Office. They're the Secretary of the Air Force Acquisition Group. They had a, a couple of reps there. That's how we, we got started. And the industry partners, chief among those that we worked with was a team called Anautics, uh, A-N-A-U-T-I-C-S. The Air Force had brought them in via what they call a CIBR or a small business innovation research effort. But they've all been amazing, amazing folks to work with. And of course, I don't want to leave out the ITL, the uh, SRC folks who brought so much to all this. 
most of the work was via remote collaboration, but uh, we've had some in-person sessions with the folks at Tinker and in Oklahoma City, seeing how they take the B-52s through one end of a hangar to the other as they take them apart and put them back together. It's pretty awesome. Looking at the big picture and following up on the success of, of this re-engineering project, I understand the Air Force is looking to build off that success by using some of these processes in the future. Can you talk about that and what the significance of that is? Probably the best way to say it is, as I think I touched on it up top, they intend to use this mill hub, this, their authoritative source of truth for their life cycle data. Mm-hmm. They intend for it to be uh, part of what they do going forward for the special program office for the 300 plus government employees they have uh, using that capability. They are leveraging the success of what has been put in place so far and building on, build on top of that. They have a vision for digital transformation. They have assessed their maturity and they are striving to reach a, a higher level of maturity. And they see this as a cornerstone to get there. As much as anything, it's their ability to get their hands around all of the life cycle data associated with a B-52 aircraft and be able to manage that in a more, I guess I'm going to call it a more holistic way, maybe not as stovepiped or as disparate source of data. So looking ahead to the future, how do you see the SRC building off this success and some of the lessons learned during the process? It's been a great experience so far. There has been some interest from other Air Force special program offices, and we've had some initial chats with some of them uh, as they're trying to figure out what they want to do. And we've also had some conversations with other DOD entities. Uh, Defense Logistics Agency comes to mind uh, as one of the ones we, we had talked to. So there's been some interest in what the CERT program has achieved to date. As this whole thing matures and becomes more embedded within their the B-52 program office, as we mentioned in the last question, as it gets more embedded over the coming months as standard practices and a common operating environment, I think it becomes an illustrative example of what's possible in this whole digital transformation space. Uh, I, I think illustrative examples or they're my favorite because it's something you can actually touch and see and says this is how it works, right? Yeah. So I think from that standpoint, I think that's that's part of building off of it. Also, I guess as part of just an overarching answer in terms of building off of it and any lessons learned, we're just going to continue to partner and collaborate with both the Air Force and the industry partners and you know whoever else is part of these these efforts. And we'll learn from each other. We'll take those inputs and incorporate them into improving and tailoring the capabilities we're providing to whichever DOD mission partner that we're working with. Thanks. Thanks, York. Thanks for joining us and and for this conversation. This is one of those capabilities that already has that I don't think a lot of people realize. And particularly involving the Information Technology Lab, a lot of people don't think about the fact that we're helping airplanes. There's just the gamut of of stuff already does. I think this is an important story and I think it's important work that you and your team are doing. So thank you for joining us to discuss it today. Thank you, Chris. Megan, I appreciate it On, on behalf of the SRC team. Thank you for the opportunity to highlight what they do. Yeah, glad to have you, York. Thank you. The B-52 Systems Engineering Group believes that the digital twin approach used for the new engine design conservatively saved the Air Force $10 million. The new engine will not only extend the life of the B-52, but it will also give the plane more range, endurance, and flexibility. And it will reduce fuel and maintenance costs. Estimates say the new engine will result in $10 billion of taxpayer savings between now and 2050. The Air Force is also looking to build on the success of the B-52 re-engineering project by applying its lessons to new ways to speed up contracting. 
by replacing paper-intensive comparisons of candidate engines with digital computer simulations, designers can go beyond educated guesses about capability to better compare fuel efficiency, maintenance requirements, and performance under a variety of conditions. This could also result in additional partnerships with the capabilities provided by Erdic's Supercomputing Research Center. The Power of Erdic podcast is a production of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Follow Erdic on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest information. You can also contact us at powerofurticpodcast at usace.army.mil. We'll see you next time.